0: and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now there is a phrase out there, dare I say cliché, that is, it is better to be lucky than good. And fundamentally, at my core, I gotta tell you, on an average day, I completely disagree with this sentiment. I would much prefer to be good rather than lucky. However, sometimes you can fall bass into an incredible story, and that is exactly what happened to me, on my birthday, nonetheless. Uh, and that is, I stumbled into the Lummis house and met Christian Rodriguez, the docent for El Alcial, which is also known as the Lummis house here in Los Angeles, California. And I learned about Charles Fletcher Lummis, and he is an incredible story, probably one that you have not heard of before. Now, Charles Lummis, l- a lot of people don't know who he is. A lot of people aren't really going to care until they listen to this. They may not even listen to it because they may see his name and say, I don't know who that is. I'm not going to spend an hour listening to him. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, this guy like captivated me almost like none other. And not just because he's such a, uh, an important figure in Los Angeles itself, but because... He was arguably the first blogger. He was arguably the first viral sensation. Mm-hmm. Arguably the first celebrity in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy is charismatic. He's a showman. Um, he's a sh- extraordinarily unique. Friends with presidents. Um, you know, with the poets, artists of the day. He kind of had one of those cool lives. And these are the kind of guys that really captivate me. Are these real characters? Guys who you know have this spirit and just kind of go for things. Mm-hmm. And this summarizes Charles Lummis, like, in a nutshell. And I think that's why I find him interesting. Now, I imagine you feel similarly, or you wouldn't be the guy here at the Lummis house. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's a fascinating place. I always mention to people when they come here that this house is uh, fascinating and historic, really twofold. Lummis was an important enough figure and just an interesting figure in turn of the century Los Angeles. If He lived in an ordinary house it'd be a historic site just right. because of who he was and the things right. he accomplished and yeah. just like you said what an interesting character he was. Then you've got this house is if he had done nothing else but build this house it'd probably yeah. be a historic site as well right? because it's so unique architecturally and so um, an embodiment of his passions but then that's the amalgamation that's where it comes together where mm-hmm. it's really both and it, that's really what makes this I think obviously biased but I think sure. it makes this house uh uh, one of the more special places in Los Angeles uh, in terms of a uh, small historic site.
0: Yeah. Now, now, I know, obviously, since he's such an important, compelling character, that's going to bring you to do this. But why did you personally get into to Charles Lumis?
1: So I started here as a volunteer uh, huh. just because I came into the house one day. I started as a volunteer looking, looking for volunteer opportunities. Yeah. I was in between jobs. And I love local history. I've always loved Southern California history. And, but I didn't know much about this place other than I knew, I, I'm a big fan of architecture. So I knew that it was a stone built house. I kind of had knew, known that just from my reading about LA architecture, that there was mm-hmm. a historic landmark and there was a, a guy who built some stone house. And I was volunteering at another museum, a fantastic museum, the Heritage Square Museum, which is across the way. And I happened to be walking by after a, a docent training class. And I came in here and they were, it was open. And this house, at that point, was the headquarters of the Historical Society of Southern California. I kind of came in here and just walked around and was so uh, fascinated and um, with the place architecturally. And then when I heard the story, mm-hmm. which we'll get into, the story of the man behind it, it just mm-hmm. kind of was like, "Wow, this is something." There's really something kind of uh, the word I used uh, would use at that point was magical. I thought there was something mm-hmm. kind of interesting really interesting, really uh, something that really drew me to this place. And so I ended up starting. I was volunteering at both places for quite a while. Hmm. And then, uh, unfortunately, I love the people over at the Heritage Square. I still see them, talk to them all the time, but I don't volunteer. Now I, I'm only here. And then that eventually turned into a job. Now I actually do this for a, as a as a job. And the history of the house since then is kind of interesting.
0: Since the time you started? Yes. So you've been laying down your own history at the Lummis House. <laughs> yes. Like well, well, So what's happened since... You mean, oh, the the battle over who owns it and everything like that. No, well, that's yeah. a, then that is a kind of a compelling thing because it brings into question, you know, w- who owns these historic lands? Landmarks. Well, it's not a matter of
1: ownership. I mean, in the legal sense, that's oh, never see. been a question. The city of Los caretakers Angeles owns kinda. this house. Yeah, the caretakers, yeah. yeah. The city of Los Angeles will, the, uh, for, pretty much, for, I mean, I, could, I guess I can't say that unequivocally, but it's right. going to forever own this house. I don't, <laughs> don't think there's any attempts to sell this sure. house to anybody, yeah.
0: But if anyone sold it, they would be the ones who sold it.
1: Right. They own no. the house.
0: You have any offers on the house? Has anyone ever <laughs> said, like, hey, I'd like to buy this? You know, Constantly.
1: Here's... We get people coming in here almost every weekend. Saying, but, like, laying an offer
0: down or just saying, oh, hey, I'd like to live here? Or, like, look, uh, I'll, I'll give yeah. you Oh, yeah. 2. No, 5. people
1: joke, oh, come in here and joke around. I, I hear it constantly every weekend. People say, oh, I'd love to live here, uh-huh. you know, which I always say is very unusual for a historic site most historic sites are not places that people necessarily want to live they may be fantastic experiences mm-hmm. uh or uh, fantastic educationally kind of places that are like a walk back in time mm-hmm. but um but i think it's kind of i I'm, i know that it's pretty rare i'm pretty sure most historic other historic house museums people don't say oh i'd love to live here and mm-hmm. we get it almost every day hmm. yeah yeah
0: like, they would want to actually physically be here and sleep here. I oh, mean, yeah. it's, it doesn't have air conditioning. They so that's They would have to put in air conditioning. It's a little warm <laughs> in here. But, but I guess I could see the layout. Um, yeah. But I think you were you were mentioning you have a theory as to why that is, because you think this is very deeply rooted in our current culture. Yeah. Um, tell me, tell, remind me on what exactly you meant by that, because so, it's uh, very interesting.
1: As I said, I think it's very unusual that people come in here. And what I, after a while, it, that it struck me. And I gave it some thought, and I kind of developed this theory as to what it is. And I think it just has to do with the physical layout of the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Lummis built this house uh, as an homage to like the history of the West. So you did certain mm-hmm. rooms. You see very much a Pueblo influence, sure. and then kind of a mission influence. It's an L-shaped house that opens up to the courtyard. There's no halls. Each room opens up to the next room. It's kind of like I always say, like realtor's term. It's an open concept, mm, right? right? And everything uh, flows from one room to the other. Right. And it's the way it's it's uh, more the way people live today. And what people are not pre- or what people don't except unless you're like an architectural historian or if you read about this stuff, what people don't perceive right away is that there is a direct or what people don't know right away is that there's a direct connection between the Spanish colonial. Uh, historical architecture and the way we live today. The early modernist architects like Irving Gill or Mm -hmm. Cliff May kind of took that uh, the Spanish colonial L-shaped house opening up to the outdoors uh, with cross-ventilation and distilled it, kind of stripped out the adobe and the clay tile roof and... uh, Uh, simplified it and kind of invented the ranch house, which is Mm. something that was born here in Southern California, and then became the normal way people live throughout the United States. So people come here, and they feel, they just walk around the house, and there's just something that seems really comfortable and familiar. Mm -hmm. But it's just so interesting, because really what Lummis was doing when he built this house was he was trying to reference history as it was then, in the turn of the century. And And yet it feels more modern to people than, than a house that would have been more typical of that era.
0: Well, he's very ahead of his time, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was just kind of um, you know it's coincidence because it's L shaped L for Lumis, obviously. Um, is that th- that's true, right? L for Lumis. No, no. <laughs> no. But, so that's kind of an accident, and a happy accident. Happy accident. Yeah. And, and so now we have L shaped houses thanks to Lumis.
1: Well, not necessarily thanks to Lumis, but uh, actually no, I wouldn't say. Christian, thanks to, thanks to Lumis. <laughs> I wouldn't say thanks to Lumis, but just the but. That's what people are perceiving when they come in here. Got it. Okay.
0: That's part of the theory Mm -hmm. that you have. Yeah. It's a devious theory. I like it, though. There's a lot (laughs) to it. So now we're in the house. We're probably going to end in the house. Yeah. But now let's go back in time a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Lummis's early years, how a guy like this was forged in fire uh, which he wasn't really forging and fire, but how how was he created? Well, we all know that story. That's a little NSFW. So let's go a couple years later mm-hmm. when he's a little kid. So his mother dies when he's two, which is mm-hmm. devastating to him. Huge impact on his life. Huge impact. Yeah. And he's kind of young at the time, mm-hmm. but he writes a poem later on that's very touching that's about his fir- what he believes to be his first actual memory, right. which is of her dying. Yeah. Um, very touching poem. Uh, and... His father is a minister, mm-hmm. um, very religious man, and also a principal mm-hmm. at a school. And so he goes to school, but he finds out all that... All-girls school, by the way. Was it? Oh, he a girl school. Oh, I didn't know yes. that. Oh, the <laughs> father taught it in all-girls yeah. school. Oh, got it. Um, well, that's a very interesting point, yes. which will come up later on. Lummis <laughs> uh, love, loved the ladies. L oh, for ladies. Uh, and maybe that's why the house was shaped like an L for L for <laughs> ladies. So he, he's having an education, he's, you know, he's getting education, going to school, he's not getting enough out of school. And he says, hey dad, you know a lot. Come teach me. Put yeah. it into here. points to yeah. his head. Um, how did homeschooling, how, what was that like in those days?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the particulars of what that was like, but I just always am struck by the, the fascinating level of insight that you can have as a mm. however old he was a young right. boy to say oh i'm not getting i'm not getting the fullest extent of what i can get out of this formal education i'm getting in a schoolhouse right. yeah. so i need you to educate me from home and i always think that's a fascinating thing and I, uh, one of the things i always say is that i'm very fascinated by this level of self-awareness that love yeah. had throughout yeah. his life yeah, yeah. And it's already demonstrated as a young boy when he asked his father, oh, no, this isn't working for me. I need you to teach me in, in, at home. Yeah. Because uh, uh, he already just knew what, that that wasn't going to work for him.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting, you know. I think that is actually a great point because I think one of the keys to successful people is being able to know where your strengths and weaknesses are, Mm -hmm. and also being able to analyze the strengths and weaknesses in other people. Mm -hmm. And then having, and that's, those parts are teachable, but being able to inherently know how to exploit your strengths against someone else's weaknesses. Um, You know, obviously sports do this by definition, Um, but in life we all should be doing something like that. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do it at such an early age just shows you what this guy is going to become because he's really undaunted by just about everything in life. And it starts with being challenged at school. Very few kids, at least where I was growing up, Wanted to be challenged right. more in school. Right. You know, they wanted to take the easy route. I still yeah. know people who would go to college and take easy classes, and yeah. I, it was always a foreign concept to me. I'm not calling myself Lummis-esque, right. but I wouldn't be. I would, uh, you know, that would take it as a compliment. But I was always trying to challenge myself.
1: Well, especially in college, it's kind of like especially in college. That's kind of the, the, it's the point. That's the whole point of college, yeah. exactly. Because you have to choose <laughs> yeah. to go to college. Right. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're, you know, you're that's obligated by law. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I never understood, but when guys like that, especially at a time when education wasn't as you know wasn't as I guess in certain circles yeah. it was it was definitely valued, but not all not throughout or America. Or accessible. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I guess if your dad's a teacher, there you go. Exactly. Um, so he so he does this, and he gets homeschooled extremely well, or at the very least, Lummis absorbs it very well, and he kind of. So he gets accepted to Harvard University, mm-hmm. like not not a pretend Harvard, the Harvard, Harvard University. Yes. Two years before you're actually allowed to apply. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how advanced he was. Mm-hmm. So he gets into Harvard, and that's where his uh, Animal House style adventures start <laughs> to take place. Um, so what? Here's what. Here's what's great, and and. What I love about college years in general is they're basically the time when you are forged into a human being, and and not necessarily you know it's kind of the end of high school and the college years. Whether you go to college or not, you're forged into the individual that you're going to become. And I think that his college years were very important to him. Mm -hmm. He loved, and I'm gonna so I believe that these were his priorities in order: were (laughs) poker, poetry, pranks, athletics, and girls. Actually, might be reverse order, but he was (laughs) he was really into all that stuff. Right. Um. And he loved the social aspect of college. Yeah. What is your favorite Lummis college story?
1: Oh. good question. College story. I'll hit you with good questions. Yeah. You seem you're shocked by good
0: questions. Like uh. I'm going for a loop. <laughs> oh. If you want, I can tell you mine and then you can think about yours. But I'd re- I'm really curious what you think his favorite college story is. Mine. Um, has to be, and this sets up something later on in in, in the Lummis story. Mm-hmm. Is he 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 takes he hitches a 127 mile round trip over Thanksgiving hike. I forget where exactly he's going, but he basically um, is walking and hitching a ride at a time when this is you know impossible. There aren't a lot of you know, there's no cars on the road, obviously. Right. So hitching a ride, you're walking most of that. Um, I find it very interesting because, again, I think it sets up this weird little thing where he gets a love to walk, which sets up his tramp aqua- across the continent yeah. where he walks from Ohio to to Los Angeles. But I, I, I like driving, and so mm-hmm. like I can see where people can kind of find a love for physically moving yourself from one place to another. Like, flying's kind of like a cheap route out, you know, because you're not really seeing anything. It's really (laughs) fast. But walking, you're experiencing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I love that story about him because it just tells a lot. That's my personal story.
1: Of his hitchhiking. Of his hitchhiking. I like that one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. and the Teddy Roosevelt story too isn't bad. Well, yeah. I'm going to tell you my second favorite story okay. then. I'm just going to tell the whole. I'm going to tell you the, the I was obviously fascinated with Lummis the college years, a, a show I would totally watch. Yeah, the watch. show you would never you a, want to show produce. I would totally produce and watch <laughs> Lummis the college years. So Teddy Roosevelt. You know
1: what's so funny though is that Lummis really didn't wasn't so enamored with his own college years.
0: Is that true? He had such a great... I mean, look, maybe I'm just reading the boiled-down version. That's the thing of it was
1: that I think he was sort of not really impressed with the social aspects Hmm. of it. Like you said, he was... I mean, if he were, he would have probably been all about this, uh, you know, uh, the kind of antics that they got into, but he really wasn't and didn't really see much value, which is part of why he... which we'll get to in a second, but part of why when he eventually did drop out I don't think he, it didn't occur. I think he just thought he had got everything he was going to get out of it, and it didn't matter to him. Uh-huh. You know, so it's kind yeah. of interesting. I don't know that he later, then later, many years later, when they gave him an honorary degree, then uh-huh. I think he was kind of more, had a little more pride about it. <laughs> That's you the know, worst. Well, yeah. But, uh, but up until that point, I don't know that he, he kind of, and then, obviously, once he came out to Los Angeles, and kind of formed this, which I'm way skipping ahead. But yeah, yeah, you this, yeah, we're skipping. You know, five formed chapters. this new identity as a Southwesterner. He really eschewed this kind of Easterner uh-huh. uh, aspect of his of his background. Right. So I don't know that it was something that was like a source of pride for him necessarily.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, what was a source of pride is. I think his his connections, his networking, yes. was a source of pride, and Teddy Roosevelt's a part of that. And he
1: leveraged it to no end. Absolutely, yeah. he's.
0: I mean, I'm so jealous of his ability to do that because that, there's nothing that comes less naturally to me mm-hmm. than that. Maybe killing another human being would come less naturally, <laughs> um, or an animal, um, but networking is definitely second on that list mm-hmm. of n- natural abilities of mine. And and I think that like what's cool about the the. The Roosevelt story is because it again it tells you a lot about Lummis' character. Yes. So he's a, he's a freshman. Um, uh, Roosevelt's an upperclassman. So there's yeah. this hazing ritual that goes on in Harvard where the freshmen are forced to cut their hair by the sophomores. And so Lummis refuses. He has long hair, and by God, he's keeping his long hair. Yeah. And so a chal- a threat is issued by the sophomore class of 19- of 1880, and they say, you're cutting your hair, or we're going to come get you. Lummis. Lummis. Specifically him. So, oh, yeah, spe- yeah. specifically him. Well, there yeah, were a couple yeah. other people. There yeah. were like two or three people. They were targeting Lummis. And Lummis basically wrote an, a thing that said, well, listen, class of 80, when, you, when you're feeling man enough, you can come find me... Um, over, you know, I'll take you on individually or as a yeah. group, and you know, basically challenges the entire class, which is very impressive. A little stupid um, <laughs> and, and very aggressive, to be perfectly honest with you. But I like it, and and it's well, the and, gonads and really, that he shows. And really,
1: policy, which we haven't got into, but Lummis' stature, Lummis was. Probably, he said 5'6", probably closer to 5'5". Five, right. Five. Right. I mean, strong, <laughs> right. really strong guy, and he was into boxing and yeah. stuff like honed
0: that. Yeah, honed his but athletics in Harvard. He really yeah, became he, an athlete, like, A true he really athlete. did
1: mean he, That's what he focused he on. He loved anything any sport any yeah. challenge any physical challenge he was all he was yeah. always from childhood but still i mean he's a smaller guy a strong yeah. guy but still a smaller guy so just the level of confidence to be like yeah, yeah i'm going to take all you guys out on. right one or, and then
0: not even like individually he didn't like even specify like look no. I'll, I'll take you guys right. out but it's got to be one at a time it's yeah. got to be in a public place he didn't even give like details he said, look you one or all i'm taking you guys out yeah. and teddy roosevelt was like I like this guy. Yeah. I like this kid. Yeah. He's got a lot of gumption. He planted that
1: seed of like, oh yeah, that that yeah. kid, yeah. that guy, the Lummis yeah. guy,
0: which Lummis, like I
1: said, leveraged basically to. to well, how would to you know not? Wine. Yeah, you yeah, suddenly became pre- friend that's of the what president. He was genius at was yeah. making, you know, oh yeah, by the way, like you said, when it right. was convenient. Oh, remember our, our <laughs> times at Harvard? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: Which he definitely did, but I mean, it's it's this is a very impressive trait. So. Um, now, in college, a couple other things I want to get to, because I think a lot of his life gets set up in college. Um, that's my personal theory. So the other thing that's kind of interesting here is, and this is the subject of some controversy, so I'm going to have to get into some murky, murky waters here. Mm-hmm. But I There's know a lot you're, of murky waters. Yeah, you're place. not afraid to get your hands dirty, <laughs> which I like. So now let's talk about, in, um, in Lummis' junior year at Harvard, he's actually secretly married to a BU student, uh, mm-hmm. Go Terriers, I'm glad mm-hmm. he picked a BU student, that's my alma mater. So he, he, he marries this woman named Dorothy, uh, who's a med student, and it's for it's a little strange reasons. There's something going on there. Do you want to elaborate a little bit?
1: So the, the prevailing sort of uh, a rumor, and I don't really know, even know that this is confirmed or whether or not this is in his diaries, but uh, Lummis was uh, uh, popular, apparently, with the ladies. He's a charming guy. ladies' man, char- yeah, ladies very man. charming, very charming man. And uh, that there may have been some sort of... Uh, what will we call it? An emergency? Uh, what's what's the you know, <laughs> um, you know um, an unexpected the, circumstance? An unexpected circumstance, the, yes. The, involving another lady, yeah. And I think the uh, Dorothea Rhodes, who his first wife was um, a, a, a friend uh-huh. of his, who had feelings for him, and I, so I think he, she was kind of a, a, a convenient sort of out from this sticky situation that he got himself in. Got so, it. And, which is very sad, but that is the fact of, or that's the, kind of the prevailing theory as to mm. why he married his, his first wife.
0: So, like a marriage to get out of a shotgun marriage. Right. Got it. Right. Okay.
1: And, um, and uh, Lummis' children, uh, many years, in the 1976, I think, published a book. His eldest daughter, Turbus Fisk, and uh, um, his son, Keith Lummis, uh, wrote a book together in 1976. It's called um, Charles Lummis, A Man in His Southwest. And they have a wonderful chapter in there about uh, Dorothea Lemis's first wife, who was not their mother, his mm. first wife before, their, his second wife, who was their mother. And uh, they write very, uh, they, using letters that he wrote to Dorothea, mm-hmm. they kind of analyze that relationship. It's a fantastic book because it's really well written and very objective. They don't really, uh, there's no rose-colored lenses. Sure, they kind of yeah, present yeah. him for all his faults, but with reverence. But that that re- first re- initial relationship, when you really look at the letters and kind of see the circumstances of it, it was kind of sad. Yeah. You can tell that that was the... Beginning of it, yeah. it makes sense. Like, their relationship makes sense when you put it in the context of what we were just saying about sure. why they got married.
0: Right, right. And yeah. there's other letters later on, especially when he goes on this trek and kind of like gets away from everyone in yeah. civilization he and moving, moves away from yeah. civilization. Both, you know, both philosophically and physically, he's moving away from civilization. That um, you know her letters to him, or she really wants to see him, and he's kind of like, yeah, you yeah, know, I'm kind of on the road, you yeah. know, like yeah, I'm doing my thing. Yeah. It is. It's very. It's like a bittersweet kind of a thing yeah. with with him.
1: She later. They later divorced, uh, which we'll get to. Obviously, that was many years later once he got here, and she remarried one of the founding regents of UCLA. So I always say to people, she upgraded. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like oh, well, she did okay. <laughs> yeah, she did all she right. Was, she did all right. It yeah, wasn't. Yeah. Uh, she didn't do so awful, and they were later. Friends, they're friendly up until, um, um, I mean, even after he remarried.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, and so while so while he's in so one other thing that he did, um, and and in in Harvard is he he wrote a book of poetry, which again showed his networking skills. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about that for a second.
1: Yeah. So Lummis, during the summers, was working at this resort in New Hampshire, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. That uh, where he was working in the print shop, so he would print up the menus for the day or whatever they needed printed up signage posters to announce the activities of what was going on at the resort. But he had access to this print shop, and so uh, with this uh, at this print shop, he uh, wrote a small little book, a little mini book, about maybe an inch by inch and a, inch and a half by maybe two inches. Um, Called and he did Wait, it. hold
0: on. The book is an inch by an inch and a half? Yeah,
1: it's a little mini, little tiny book. We have a couple examples of it here on display. An
0: inch by an inch and a half?
1: like a, maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe like an inch and a half by two.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's That's not small. much bigger. I didn't it's know it was a much that much small. Yeah, That's it's a, very it's a small, tiny. It's
1: a small book. And um, he uh, printed it on Birch Park, which is kind of, you know, the... the the paper off, yeah. of, you know, birch bark, literally thin, so that you can yeah. write it through a printer. Sure. And he and he called the book the birch bark poems, oh. apt name.
0: Yeah, and not very uh, creative. I would actually expect something much more creative of yeah. him. Like that's pretty on the nose. Don't <laughs> it's you think? really on the nose. Yeah.
1: But he printed up these um, these little booklets of poetry that he wrote and just uh, sent them out unsolicited to people, to prominent authors and uh, other uh, people he thought might be interested, and just from word of mouth and him publicizing it himself. In the end, he ended up selling ten thousand copies of this book, wow. or over ten thousand copies. And eventually, he wasn't printing them all himself. But, right. But the first, that initial run, he was printing in this print shop. The first at edition. Night. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. After, uh, since he had access to this print shop for free.
0: Now, when you say it's not just authors, I mean he's th- this is a prominent poet at the time. Like, oh yeah. Longfellow, right. Longfellow was Longfellow, one. Longfellow,
1: Walt Whitman. Yeah. And here on display at the house, we have a couple of copies of letters that they received in
0: response. That's insane. I mean, yeah. these. It's not just like like local authors. Right. No,
1: no, no. No, Lummis was always reaching high (laughs) in terms of his networking. He didn't, uh, yeah. If anybody was uh, later on, uh, if anybody was really interesting or interesting to him or did something that he wanted to be connected with, he would always just send out these kind of uh, unsolicited letters and see if they'd get a response. He'd get a response, and oftentimes he did. And that's uh, really kind of when you think of this era in the 1880s, you know. Networking—it's just the idea of networking. Like we were saying, networking is hard enough today yeah. with all of the tools that we have to do yeah. it. And imagine so—the fact that he had that mind to think like, "Oh, I need to be connected.
0: I need to write a letter. I need to sit down and take yes. paper out and take a pen and quill and uh, you know, all this and stuff. And just
1: hope that they'll respond. But the thing is, it's so, what's interesting is that they often did. They and responded. That's how we came, became so connected. Yeah. yeah, but he
0: also had a great writing style that was very engaging as well. Yeah. That I think that helps a lot. You yeah. know, if you just write, "Hello." Chuck, you yeah, know, I want to meet you. Um, you know, say hi. Yeah. You know, that's a really boring, terrible letter. No sure. one's gonna respond. But he has very flowery language. You know, he's right. he's a very captivating individual. Yeah, charming. Um, so now, let's talk about the end of his college days. So he flunks out of college. I guess flunked out. So is not the right word because essentially he just didn't have enough credits. Right. And the thing that he was just shy. Just shy. Yeah. N- not a shy individual. Just shy. Of right. The no, just
1: shy of graduating. Yeah.
0: Um by one trigonometry class. I believe it's one trigonometry. Yes, senior year trigonometry. Yeah. So, why do you think that's the thing that got him? Like throughout his life, he had so he's overcome so many obstacles. The man was indomitable except when it came to advanced levels of um, math. math. Yeah. Why is that?
1: I I honestly have no clue, especially given how educated he was by his father. Sure. But um uh Thinking about it though, letting it stew, uh, I, I am reminded of well, a question we get often here at the house is whether or not there are actual plans for the house. Like blueprints? Like blueprints? Blue 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 yeah. Right. And Lummis did design and who planned this house, yeah. but there are no blueprints. There are no blueprints that exist. He never had anybody. Never existed, Yeah, as far as we know, huh. because they don't exist in his papers. And he was pretty methodical about keeping everything, record of everything. He kept record of everything, which we'll get into. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into it. everything. Wow. So, uh, so there are no blueprints, and I've noticed just being here so many years that there are a lot of examples of uh, woodwork in this house. Uh, the woodwork in this house is spectacular, and mm-hmm. you have to come see, experience it yourself. But, but yeah, uh, you know, there are stories, too, of the kind of things that happened during the construction of this house. There was a lot of trial and error. Yeah. And um, so it, it kind of is, a, thinking about it, it kind of is like there are examples maybe of the woodwork in this house where it was, probably wasn't a, a measure twice cut once type guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and, and there's uh, things that didn't work out, things that yeah. you know he 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 uh, had to redo. So uh, and he writes about that in his diary. So maybe math just wasn't his strong suit. And even when and that's trigonometry, but even yeah. just the most basic math, yeah, I'm gonna say wasn't, he wasn't a numbers person. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, that's fair. And you know, what I I love when I when I see like great guys like this. Not even great guy, just great people in general. Great personalities. Who can do a lot of things, and I love finding their Achilles heel. You know, I mean, even Superman (laughs) had kryptonite, right? Like he had his thing that he could be beaten with, and you can beat him with math and trigonometry. You know, which which actually is kind of interesting when you look at he had to plan out um, a trek from Chillicothe, Ohio, to Los Angeles. That had to require math at some point, you know? I mean, in yeah. some level of, you know, when you're using maps, there's angles and everything. Right. You know, there's got to be some level in that. But anyway. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I, I kind of, I, I don't know that he was a complete, uh, you know, idiot when it came to math. Sure. But I just, uh, uh, just said. I was, that was just, making that argument, and it just wasn't, Yeah, whole, but it just wasn't his, uh, it just wasn't Paul a strong Another thing I'm reminded of, of, one of the things here too was the household budgets. Which he didn't seem terribly concerned about <laughs> oh wow yeah. but, uh, but but then again, he was pretty on top of I mean from what I've seen anyway, on top of the budgets for all the civic groups that he was attached to, mm. probably because he had to be yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you're accountable for that stuff yeah uh,
0: so he um, so, so he, he, he's married Dorothy he, he graduates college graduates college he gets out of college yeah. he flunks out yeah. So then he by his father-in-law is told to manage a farm in Chillicothe. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna fast forward through some of the stuff there. Um because I wanna get to this trek, which is very interesting. So he's there, he makes again leverages connections to you know his Republican Party. Um, gets very involved in politics mm-hmm. and leverages that to a job in the New York Times. And he's working at a... At a the L.A. Times. T- L.A. Times. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> the L.A. Times. The uh, other direction. Uh, at the L.A. Times. Now, while he's in Chillicothe, he's working for a newspaper. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you to pronounce it. Which, which one is it? The
1: Sociogazette. You? There you go. Yeah, I enough. think is how it's pronounced, but yeah. I might be mangling it.
0: So he's writing for them, and mm-hmm. he leverages that in his connections into a job at the Los Angeles Daily Times. At the, that particular point in time, was only a three-year-old newspaper. Mm-hmm. 1200 12,000 people are in Los Angeles mm-hmm. as I've always said it's the good old days that was <laughs> great. And so he gets a job out there and he decides that he is going to be, he's going to walk walk Forrest Gump style from Ohio to Los Angeles and he plans this trek out which he calls the tramp across America. Now one has to ask why in the world would you do something like that? And I think there are some prevailing theories. Do you have any on why he would decide this particular route and why he would do this to promote his move out there?
1: Um, Well, I know he was always during his youth in New England. He was always a hiker, adventurer, Mm -hmm. and always was all about the physical and wanting to scale. You know, had kind of very very much an outdoorsman mentality when it came to. uh, exploring that, he loved the outdoors, mm-hmm. that, which kind of goes, I guess, in hand with hand in hand, in, in absolutely. New but um, but so he decided to come out here. But it really was the the publicity gimmick aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few things that
0: um, uh, well, there are other. You also got one thing I came across, which is the publicity. I think is is kind of key to this whole thing because it's kind of key to Lummis. Yeah. So I think you're right there. But uh, you know, I was I was reading about how he loved this author named Reed who's from Ireland and wrote about the Southwest. And he loved this anthropologist named Cushing's who kind of fell in love with the native peoples of the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because a lot of the trek, he takes these side streets to go visit places that are either in those books or in their storytelling um, or just important to go through. And he kind of builds this like, you know, almost like following the Lewis and Clark expedition. He's kind of following their trail. And I think that that's kind of what does it. But the publicity aspect, was really interesting because he, when he decides to leave, the newspaper he's working for gets upset, so he decides to pre-sell right. his, his. Do we call them the Dispatches. Is that what he uh, called? I, it? That's what I
1: call them. or, yeah. or uh, I think I don't that's know, right. what you would call them. articles. Travel his, weekly, logs, yeah. Yeah, his weekly, yeah, his weekly travel,
0: his weekly blog. Basically, yeah. <laughs> there's was a blog from yeah. you know early on. Um, he pre-sells them to the Chillicothe Gazette, which, you know, even in retrospect, I look—I don't know what went down between him and his former employer. Mm. I don't know. You know, maybe you can shed some light if you know. But it still seems like kind of a dick move to okay. like sell it to your to your you know your 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 rival of the of your employer.
1: Well, and also, well, it's interesting. And the
0: LA Times didn't pick up the dispatches, which not is until, also weird.
1: Right. Well, not until he that started until he started his trick. But the the. What's interesting too is that those articles printed in the in Chillicothe are not the same articles that were later printed in the LA Times. They're two different sets of articles.
0: How were they changed?
1: That's a good question. You can sit there and analyze the changes. Right. <laughs> yeah, because both both of them have been published. The yeah. later Lummis compiled all the articles that he wrote for the LA Times. Uh, w- mm. one of the books he published which is called a tramp across the continent okay and and by the way all of his books are uh, almost all of his books are out of copyright and you can download them on internet archive and google books oh. just read them for yourself so all of those articles are compiled in that was oh, fascinating but later uh, somebody put together the articles that were published in the the chillicothe versions mm. of the articles that were published and uh Put them together in a book that I think came out like 30 or 40 years ago called uh, Letters from the Southwest. Hmm. Yeah. And it's not exactly same. It's not the same.
0: Yeah. So when, now when you say that, because you've got like this devious look on your face. So when. Oh. Well, because I'm curious because no. he's writing a weekly uh-huh. newspaper. And so he has to have an adventure every week. It's very similar to like a television show or something, right? So he's already pre sold them. He's got to come up with something every week. Uh, you know, and you know, there's not always something interesting going on. Right. So do you think there was a level of fabrication to the stories? Or, or, or what do you think was different, I guess, is why? Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. you got that look on your face like, all right, there were two separate stories for a reason.
1: Well, I, to tell you to tell you the honest truth, I have That's not read the for. letters from the Southwest. I've read, oh. I've read The Tramp Across the Continent. It, but what somebody's told me is that, what I've heard anyway, is that the letters from the Southwest is kind of more... Candid, more interesting. Oh. And I don't oh, know what, okay. uh, in what way I can't really explain. I, I have read I it see. myself.
0: Okay. So they're like a little more watered down for the masses in the LA Times. The LA
1: Times, right? Right. Version. Okay. Yeah. Well, so now let's maybe, talk. Maybe he was afraid of uh, inadvertently offending somebody here mm. because there was a the Southwest out here. Whereas oh, I see. I, I don't know. This is just uh, off the top of my head. But maybe in, in the, the Chillicothe versions, he felt like it was. Uh, he can be as candid as he wanted to be and mm-hmm. didn't feel like he might offend anybody. I
0: don't no, know. Well that's an interesting point because initially early on when he was when he first started this thing out and you know I'm going to tell you in a minute what he was wearing when he started and where he ended mm-hmm. because this is really a, both a philosophical and physical journey that he takes here. And so to go to your point there one of the things that he did Early on, when he was writing, is he was very derogatory when it came to the peoples of the Southwest, specifically the descendants of Mexico and mm-hmm. and that area, and he called them greasers, which I think is I think I can say that because I don't think it's a currently derogatory term, and it's also it's still out of date from the 50s when it was used. Mm-hmm. So, but he used he used that term, and then slowly started putting it into air quotes, and then he got rid of it completely. So mm-hmm. even his attitude changed. And my I guess my point is maybe that kind of language would be okay in Ohio, but not in the area he's going to, which was at the time occupied by lots of people, native people and people from Mexico Mm -hmm. and people of Spanish descendants as well. Mm -hmm. Am I on to something? No, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, It it is kind of funny that later on he would edit them and put them into a book. Well, shortly
1: after. I think the book came out in 1892. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. Uh, the tramp across the continent. Right. The letters from the Southwest. Lummis compile.
0: That uh, was much. Yeah, that was in the seventies. Right. Yeah. There. Yeah.
1: Nineteen seventies.
0: Uh, so now let's talk about what he looked like when he was leaving. You know, so he's he's an Easterner, but he's he is in the Midwest. So he's gone from Harvard, which you can't get any more East Coast than Harvard. It's right. Ivy League. <laughs> is in the Midwest, and he sets up. So I'm gonna I'm gonna set this. I'm gonna give you his outfit, although I'm sure you know it already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had on a white flannel. T-shirt tied up to his neck. Hmm. Now, 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 I gotta keep in mind he's about to embark on a thirty-five hundred mile walking trek during the winter. During the winter. During the winter of eighteen eighty-four. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So keep that in mind. So a white flannel uh, tied up to his neck, secured with a blue ribbon. Knickerbockers, red knee-high stockings. A wide, And Knickerbockers are basically wear like capri pants, like right. up to the knee, right? So And then you have red knee-high stockings, a wide-brimmed felt hat, and low-cut Curtis and Wheeler street shoes, and over that, a large duck canvas coat. <laughs> uh, I would love to see that. Do you have pictures of th- how we started out? No,
1: that's a good one. Well, there might be pictures, but I haven't seen those.
0: How can you not have? Uh, do they exist?
1: Uh, there's so many photographs of Lummis. I mean, thousands thousands. And all of them are part of the... Uh, the Autry's, the Southwest Museum collection, which is now I part see. of the Autry. And they have a fantastic digital collection that you can access online.
0: I'm going to look for that.
1: But I don't know. I haven't seen that, that photo of, uh, before. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be great. Because yeah. then
0: the after photo, which is actually right behind us. Yeah. So let me describe this for people who can't see it. So he had, when he stepped foot into, well, I guess right when he was in Los Angeles, he had a beard. He had two six-shooters, he had a skunk pelt from his bedroll, a rattlesnake skin around his sombrero, Apache leggings, which are basically like tight leather leggings with the, the frill on the side, mm-hmm. uh, and, a, and a stuffed coyote around his neck. Mm-hmm. Now, th- those two images cannot be more uh, polar opposites. Right. Uh, so this is the Trek we are about to describe. So let's talk about some of his adventures. Um he met Jesse James's brother, Frank right. James, yeah. on this thing and interviewed,
1: interviewed him, him. I think for one of the articles, one of the dispatches. And that sounds
0: thing. right. Yeah. So do you know what that? What What was the interview about?
1: No, that I don't remember offhand. But yeah, I would I love remember.
0: to know what they talked about. Yeah. Like what are they? What's he chatting to him about? Yeah. You know what are they up to?
1: Yeah. No, like that. I don't remember offhand.
0: Um, and so he. So he. He also took. Uh, oh, th- here's a question I wanted to ask. So. At this particular point in time, you're talking about a West that is not exactly settled yet. Mm-hmm. How is he getting out there? Is he just following the railroad specifically? But he's also making his own trails, mm-hmm. uh, or, or trek, I should say. How is he getting around? Is he just following? Well,
1: trail? He's using established trails, and which generally follow follow along the railroads. Okay. But uh, but he was using established trails, so it wasn't like he was. Uh, you know, I always have to explain to people that, especially here in the 18. 18- when as soon as I explained that he walked across the country, which seems insane to
0: people, yeah. people who maybe. haven't seen *Forest Gump*, right. right? Well, people
1: yeah. and people think automatic people automatically go to that he had to, like he was pioneering or oh, something. Oh, right, like, No, You're right. nope. It's a the, choice. It like there was uh, the railroad. Yeah. Dorothea, who we were just discussing, his right. wife came moved out to Los Angeles right. with him. She came right. out
0: on the train, right? You know, so met him in Denver. Uh, that's right. She did meet yes. him in Denver. Yeah. Um, which was a very was like it was like a 25 year old city at the time. Yeah, it was weird because when he's doing all this stuff, he's at the early point when all these cities are just kind of starting up. Well, in a really interesting
1: point in the history of the Southwest too, because uh-huh. at that point there's still huge, obviously even huge vestiges of the Spanish colonial mm-hmm. culture sure, sure. Uh, he, that existed here in this part of the United States and Native American cultures. I mm-hmm. think if I remember correctly. Looking at the 1890 census, which would have been mm-hmm. not six closer years enough. after, yeah, closer, uh, Arizona was had, which had the highest percentage of Native Americans in the United States, the Arizona Territory at that point, which I guess would have included New Mexico, uh-huh. uh, but, um, uh, or that whole section of the United States, but the census figures were that it was 29% uh, Native American, the entirety of the wow. area the The state of Arizona today still has the highest percentage of Native Americans. I think it's somewhere like nine percent. Oh wow! But just to give you kind of like a a idea of how much, uh, how much more there was still uh, here left Mm -hmm. that has gone since. Yeah, yeah. That that Lummis experienced walking through the Southwest.
0: Yeah, and, and, yeah. and he, so he spends a lot of time in these major cities, That is really, and, and he even like has like this whole detour in Santa Fe, where he mm-hmm. spends like eight days just hanging out in Santa Fe, mm-hmm. and kind of falls in love with things there. And while he's doing this trek, he's kind of, you know, falling in love with the Southwest culture. You know, like I said, he, he went from being derogatory to being very, to talking about how much he loved the indigenous peoples and the Mexicans, and how warm they were, and how mm-hmm. the people he came from would, wouldn't split a, doll, would, a dollar with him, and they would give up their last, you know, food and blankets mm-hmm. and Everything. So he makes this whole like philosophical change right. while he's making this trek. Uh, but a couple of the things that happened to him oh so here this is interesting. So when you know today we would just like kind of Airbnb and like find a place to right. stay, right? But he can't do any of that. Right. And so the way he found correct me if I'm wrong here, but what I read was that the way he was able to stay with people is by singing. He actually had a great singing voice, or at least an entertaining singing voice and would sing to people and then sometimes they would let him stay. Does this sound familiar? Must have been an entertaining
1: singing voice in his mind only, because you can hear him singing. There are recordings of him singing. I, I'm just telling you what I read. I could be wrong. I don't here. know. Maybe that's a matter of opinion. But you can hear him singing. Right. Judge for yourself whether or not he was a good singer. <laughs> I'm gonna put some up there because
0: I wanna call I wanna call BS if someone said this. I I don't well, know.
1: He, is that um, yeah? The, the, I mean, it could very well be true. Is that something he wrote in his in his. Is that what he described himself in his articles? Yeah, so that's
0: from American Character that Mark Thompson wrote. Yeah, and so in that he says that a lot of the ways he was able to kind of secure himself food and a bed for the night was yeah. to sing and entertain people. We'll a see. Singer. I
1: would I would believe that Lummis said that.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and that and yeah. that could be and that could easily show up in his. You know. <laughs> exactly. Writing. That's what I was
1: getting at. Like, and it. it's like, oh, like that's if great. that was a Lummis claim, it's like, oh yeah. yeah. That sounds like a Lummis claim. <laughs> I don't know that Mark Thompson was the one saying that in his sure. research so much as it was he just relaying what Lummis said he was doing. To, you can listen. As a matter of fact, I was mentioned the Internet Archive already. The Autry has done, has uh, and the Southwest Museum started it, but now the Autry's continued digitizing all of the wax cylinder recordings he did oh. here in this house, which we can get into in a little bit. Um, and a lot of them are now up on Internet Archive. You
0: can listen to them. So oh, that's great. So you can listen to him... Yeah. Uh, uh, croning t- away. Croning. Oh, yeah, crooning away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to include one of those because I'm, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. This is one of the mysteries I want to <laughs> get to the bottom. So, so while he's there, so the other thing that happens is, you know, it sounds all fun and games. He's visiting people, kind of having adventures. But when we get to the end, things aren't going so well for him. Mm. Um, there's, you know, after he leaves Santa Fe, there's a huge snowstorm, which mm. I didn't realize that happened in the Southwest. Uh, which kind of blocks his way, and he's also, you know, kind of not exactly dressed for for this type no. of weather. Yeah, and he also breaks his arm 600 miles from the end and right. has to reset his arm. Right, that's crazy. It is. Uh, so, what kind of shape is he in towards the end of this adventure? Well, I mean,
1: imagine somebody walking across the country. I'm sure for 600 miles. In the, in the, yeah, <laughs> walking across the country is an amazing shape, undoubtedly. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Lummis, throughout most of his uh, adult life, was in a, was always in amazing shape. Again, he was a really physical person. Kind of an interesting sort of... Uh, it's interesting that you asked that question. I'm just thinking now about Lummis' physicality mm-hmm. and uh, uh, what a physical person he was. But then later... He kind of had these ailments and his... Uh, anyway, it, it, the his physical body is sort his of... His constitution. An yeah, his constitution is sort of an interesting subject. I don't know that has hmm. been analyzed. Wait, why be so, How so? Well, uh, well, <laughs> we know later, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, uh, but we know later, Lummis, after coming to Los Angeles, he was only city editor, uh, he came and eventually became city editor of Los Angeles Times after he finished his walk.
0: Well, and he started, and after he finished his walk, he started his first day on the job 12 hours after he finished his yes. trek, which seems abusive yes. to me.
1: Well, we know most of Lummis' adult life, he only slept like four or five hours a night based on his diaries.
0: On average? Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. Yeah, no,
1: I can't either. Yeah. I don't know how one does that. <laughs> but, like, but when you're workaholic... did he workaholic nap at all? I, it? If he did, he probably might have kept that in his diaries, but we know that's what he slept basically huh. most of, almost all of his adult life. Wow. And so, when he came to LA and became the city editor, uh, did that for a couple of years, he really overworked himself. And then imagine uh, with a lack of sleep. Uh really overworked himself and he suffered this ailment that he referred to as a stroke. Mm. People, we still refer to it as a stroke because he apparently was paralyzed on one side um, amongst other symptoms. So, yeah, it's not unusual for a young man, especially that overworked mm-hmm. to, to have... Uh, I mean, not, strokes, not uh, right. it, it is unusual, but it's not unprecedented for a okay. young man like that to have a stroke. <laughs> you said not unusual. Yeah, I was it's, not, like, oh, I was I say, it's it a little is, unusual. It is unusual by what I meant was not unprecedented. That's fair. But... Uh, but uh, I, I I think most people kind of agree that it wasn't a stroke. It was, it was self-diagnosed, and he fully recovered from it without any therapy or anything. It's, so,
0: it's, what could it be then?
1: Well, somebody I've had somebody suggest to me that might have been like a Bell's palsy, or it could have oh, been oh, like, or some sort of just exhaustion. Yeah, uh,
0: but just on the he just overworked the left an side infection. of his. Infection.
1: Yeah, it could have been a number of things. Um, but he suffered this debilitating ailment, and but he really milked the whole stroke thing though because he he, he ended up you know making a whole lore about how he re- fully recovered. Yeah, and he goes le-
0: to like a ranch and like works hard and like works through it. Doesn't learns he learns
1: to ride a, uh, a horse. Yeah. completely paralyzed on one side and ha- learns to hunt. Yeah, uh, and uh, shoot a rifle. Right. Uh, roll a cigarette. Right. Yeah. Head. Yeah. Right. So I don't doubt that he wasn't paralyzed. At whether or not it was a stroke is what I I is see, debatable. But um, uh, he did he did suffer some ailment that he recovered from. But uh, I guess what I'm getting at is years later he also suffered a blindness, which mm-hmm. I'm kind of jumping ahead. Yeah. Which also the, his stroke and blindness coincide with his uh, divorcing of wives
0: ah i gotcha so it's it, a kind of Christian, interesting yeah. <laughs> kind of
1: interesting uh you know and actually two um there before
0: was or after are you are you suggesting during. that okay so
1: in other words uh when he was uh when he suffered his stroke uh-huh. he left and recovered in new mexico as you mentioned he went to a mm-hmm. ranch and yeah. so he met up with friends that he had met along the way sure. in new mexico and then he ended up living in Isleta Pueblo in New Mexico, which mm-hmm. was really important in terms in the context of this house. But he came um, during that time was when the relationship with Dorothea had strained to the point, and then that's where Lomas met his second wife, was in Isleta Pueblo in New Mexico. Got it. Got and uh, his he seemed to recover from his uh, uh, paralysis really well as soon as he met his second wife and divorced his first wife. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's an interesting. I guess what I, what I do know is there is one point the blindness that I was referring to, which came much later in yeah. his life, which I oftentimes forget about. Don't mention it too much because it's such an odd <laughs> yeah. thing that happened later in his life. Um,
0: that he recovered from as well. Yeah,
1: fully recovered right. from total blindness. Right. Yeah. Uh, he there's a research paper. I wish I could knew their names offhand, but they came to my attention a couple of years ago. That to uh, to. Uh, Ophthalmologists, right? Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're doing a research paper on that, and they analyzed Lummis's blindness. Oh, really? And what they did was obviously they don't have a body to uh, analyze, uh-huh. so they or, um, uh, just went to his diaries and all the anecdotal information uh-huh. that was out there regarding his blindness and just kind of analyzed it and tried to figure out. You know what caused it, or you know, and basically the conclusion of then it was published in a journal. I'm forgetting the journal. (laughs) Medical journal, yeah, medical journal. (laughs) And and uh, and so it's kind of an interesting article. That's you know a historical article in a medical journal. But what they found out in their analysis was that uh, his reaction to the sudden blindness and recovery, as written in his own diaries, is completely uh, atypical of how people react to sudden blindness.
0: So is that a technical way of saying it's
1: all bullshit? Basically, yes. <laughs> he also never his penmanship never wavered <laughs> ever.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Okay. The lines, oh, right on the lines. Okay. Never,
1: never stopped. And even Lummis' son Jordan later had some. I uh, I remember reading that. I wish I can remember why I read this, but had some anecdote about how his father, in a in a in a fit of uh, kind of uh, annoyance. Uh, with him not doing something right, kind of when he was totally blind, kind yeah. of like just dropped whatever he was doing and fixed what the, the son was trying to do. Like, clearly, wow, okay, clearly, yeah, yeah. We, clearly not, yeah. We, yeah could it's see like yeah. a horrible comedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right.
0: You know, it, it's he's such an interesting character. Well, I want to go back, I want to finish up the Trek here really quickly. Yes, um, yes. so he, he, uh, one interesting story I wanted to mention on the Trek is that he, he, so he meets, um, he meets a lot of interesting characters. One's a cowboy who loses all of his money and joins him for a trek to, to meet up with his brother Is gonna save him. Uh, you know, he meets he has a dog that he ends up having to shoot later on. Yeah, it's it's a tragic story. Sad story. I'm uh, trying not to mention it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a sad story. My what? first dog was named oh. Shadow, so Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. No so way. That, that story was really like brutal. No. To me. Was he, it really? He, yeah, my first dog was Shadow. Oh. I love that dog, made me love dogs. Oh. And then when he gets oh. the dog, he saves it from like a, a miner had abandoned him. And like these people want to carve, so he, you know, he takes his dog with him, and I'm like, Oh, he's got a buddy, you know, like he's yeah. you know, he's got this friend to hang out with. And then as I was listening, I was waiting, I was just waiting for the dog to die. Cause yeah. I was like, Okay, well, he doesn't mention him in any of his stories and he's going to these really hard and he's like he just randomly like hikes he hikes peak while he's in Denver. You know, he does yeah. these things where he's just like, Oh, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna climb this mountain. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Well, where's the dog in all this? And then when you find out that the dog, you know, turns rabbit on yeah. him or whatever, and he has to shoot him twice. Yeah. Like not even like, you know, not even like a uh, clean shot. Yeah. Like oh my god! Like yeah. that's of course old Yeller situation. Yeah, it was yeah. no. I, sometimes I'll mention alert. the
1: dog. And I'll say oh you know Lomas came and you know he mentioned had the a dog. Adventures yet? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and he even got a dog along the way. Yeah. And then people are like oh, what happened to the dog? Oh, I well, shouldn't have mentioned that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone's always like <laughs> yeah. what yeah. happened? Yeah, and I'm like
0: I'm waiting like looking at pictures like oh maybe he's like living friendly like curled up on a you know an old dog well, on Lomas a rug. Loved or, animals
1: though, yeah. and Lomas always kept animals here. Yeah, but he was also
0: an, an avid hunter and like couldn't stop hunting. So like what's the love? He loved shooting. He loved pets. Yeah, I don't know. People that like that, I, I I don't know. it sounds so hypocritical. Maybe I'm just being a crazy animal lover right now, but you either you either love to shoot them or you love to keep them. You well, can't have a very both. modern
1: perspective too. Yeah, it is. I know. Yeah. It is it's
0: extremely. it's, her, it's
1: kind of you know, unfair. Chronocentric, to judge, yeah. Sure, I, I, I give modern that. perspective. That's there's, and lumis, there's a lot of things you can do that with lummas, you know. Yeah, yeah. Even, with anyone. With yeah, anyone. Yeah, anyone, and, and any that's historical fair. figure and um Sometimes that's a, anyway, but yeah, that's a, with Lummis especially, it's kind of, from a modern lens, a lot of people kind of find things to critique about Lummis that uh, I think sometimes are a little unfair. That's, it's, you know, yeah.
0: it's unfair. I, I'm just, I'll give him a pass. It just, it just, I don't understand how people rationalize it in their brain. But anyway, so he kept up a 25 to 35 mile per, per, per day pace, took him 143 days. It's, thir, it's like 3,507 miles. Mm-hmm and 6,513,541 6, 6, steps.
1: Unlike Lumbus, you did your math. Uh, I I <laughs>
0: well, I pulled this from something else. I didn't yeah. have any... Yeah, yeah. so I didn't actually count his... I didn't do any of the, the addition. I did
1: do the average once, though, because it took him 143 days. Right. And if I remember correctly... But he stays
0: off in Santa Fe for eight.
1: Right. So, and and there was things along the way but if yeah. you just average it out for the entire thing it averages out to 20 some odd miles a day like 20 between 20 and 25 miles a day okay if i were, somebody's gonna do the math just to prove me wrong on that <laughs> i hope sure. so yeah. if you can do you the math so, and prove yeah. him wrong do it please email to me i am yeah. post it on the website yeah, so,
0: <laughs> so he got so so anyway so he, while he's doing this trek Um, I want to come, we're running out of time here, and I feel like I've spent most of my time on Harvard Mm -hmm. and his trek, which are my two favorite parts, but while he was going through the Southwest, you know, we've talked about his his, um, switch philosophically, but he, you know, and and while he's on this trek, I just want to close this up, because I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, you know, he becomes a viral sensation, you know, probably the first viral sensation, and it starts out where no one's reading it, becomes popular, people are waiting for him in the towns to come in, and arguably, you know, and anyone can correct me if I'm wrong on this, when he goes into Los Angeles, he may very well be the first celebrity that's ever been in Los Angeles. Because this is obviously way before Hollywood. Um, But he, he could very well be the first celebrity ever to step foot in Los Angeles um
1: people were anticipating his arrival in los angeles apparently and- yeah there was a band awaiting him i hope it well. was like a, a a parade basically was that really? last few miles yeah at the San uh, harrison gray otis apparently met him at the san gabriel mission and walked the last however many miles that is five oh miles, wow six miles into downtown los Angeles or into what we call now call downtown los angeles right. which is the entirety of los angeles right <laughs> <laughs> <there>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know small is this point kind of a small dusty western town still right Yeah. so very much uh, so yeah like you said it's I'm sure it was a big to do yeah. because people started reading and and anticipating his arrival. And here
0: he is, first celebrity yeah. in Los Angeles. And he did another first while he was here; he created the first museum in Los Angeles based on his love of the Southwest. Yeah, I
1: mean, well, so so many years later after coming back to yeah, Los not America, immediately, not immediately. Yeah, yeah, I know it wasn't that. I'm, I'm, jumping, ahead, year, no, jumping, I'm ahead, jumping ahead now. I'm jumping. Yeah, it <laughs> <laughs> was no, uh, it's many years later. But yeah, Lumis got involved civically in all kinds of different things once mm-hmm. he arrived in the Southwest. But uh, one of those things was he formed a group called the Southwest Society, which was uh, sort of uh, associated with the Archaeological Institute of America. If memory serves, I'll uh, have, no, no, somebody's going to prove If you know that, if you prove him wrong, yes. tell me about it and just I'll post it on the website. The Anytime you can prove Christian wrong, all tell me about it. All the comments are just going to be fact checks on this <laughs> podcast. so. I can see it uh, right now. I would love that level of engagement, oh. by the way, in this show. I just want to, be, I would, I would kill you for should, that level you should of should engagement. do a podcast where people just put out all kinds of random, uh, facts. Uh, uh, incorrect facts. <laughs> just so you, just uh, yeah, just so you just can to get, get that engagement. level of engagement. I might take you up on that. But at any rate, uh. Uh, the The Southwest Society was a, a group formed um, and the the purpose of it was to create the first museum uh, here in Los Angeles and that's what they eventually did it's the museum that we now call the Southwest Museum mm. uh, and yeah it was founded in 19 it by the time it was founded, it was founded in 1907 so it mm. really is Lummis was and Lummis wasn't a wealthy man himself but uh, As we said, a huge networker got the right people involved and was able to get it together. He was really the driving force behind the founding of the museum. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, And it's incredible, and, and, and not only that, but he also, you know, he's a preserver of this culture, is he also on wax cylinders, which were, you know, they're basically like a tube, like a record tube, uh, Thomas Edison wax cylinders, people should know what those are, fact check that,
1: yeah. um, but he
0: recorded all of the, like, old songs of California on yeah. there, and kind of preserved the history of these songs that he was afraid uh, were going to go into obscurity, is that right?
1: Right. So what what he did first off, before the wax cylinders, was he got a grant from the archae... Like not a grant, I don't know if they called it a grant then, but money from the Archaeological Institute of America to take on this project. He and this composer friend of his, Arthur Farwell, put together a songbook hmm. that is called um, The Songs of Old California. And what it was, was when Lemus came out here, he, as he said, kind of formed this... Identity as a Southwesterner really wanted to preserve what I always tell people about Lummis and why he's an important person today is he really wanted to, uh, he wanted to emphasize to um, people that the history and culture of the Southwest, Spanish colonial set what. what what I refer to as Spanish colonial settlement what's now the United States the history of that and Native American cultures he really wanted to emphasize its importance within the context of the history of the United States and that it isn't something that should be erased Mm -hmm. in the sort of manifest destiny idea but rather like oh no let's embrace this and like kind of uh, appreciate it, and 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 that what it adds to us as a as a whole country, and so e- everything he did was to that end. And this songbook was one of the most incredible. He got this uh, composer, the traditional Spanish songs of California, which differ from the traditional Spanish songs of say northern Mexico or Baja California. Um, uh, are, were specific to California, and that tradition was being lost at the turn of the century because it was passed down orally. Mm-hmm, and right. the last Californios who were still around, who were getting older, who knew these traditional songs, were you know, they weren't, it wasn't being passed down. So he got this money to put it to sheet music. So they recorded these uh, these traditional songs, and they put it to sheet music, and they published a book. that was called the Spanish, uh, uh, the old Spanish songs of uh, California. And then he got another more money from the archaeological institute, and he got an Edison wax cylinder mm. and recorded these uh, m- oftentimes these old Californios here in this room where we're recording this.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, Holy and uh, he
1: he recorded these wax cylinders and put them um, and just to, to save for posterity the original voices of these people. And to him, it was such a marvel. I mean, that's what's so interesting about Lemus too, is that we find him kind of. This house looks like a, a historical house, and but he was so fascinated by the technology of those wax cylinders. Right. Was, and so, and he so modern thinking, He was so kind of, in that way, regard, kind of embracing of a technology, which is yeah. sort of a, a, interesting. But at any rate, so the, they did all of these, and I've, I don't remember the exact number, but there are oh, 700, between 700 and 800 of these wax cylinders, which oh, are, wow. all, all exist and they've all been digitized. All of them? Uh, yes. Because you have to. I believe in uh, another fact-check situation for yeah. somebody out there. Someone I, get this guy, yeah. <laughs> please. He's running amok be- with his facts. My understanding is that Edison wax cylinders are nearing the end of their uh, possible existence. Like, the, Oh, you mean like
0: the wax only lasts for so long yeah. and all of them made or if, if the end.
1: you, If anybody out there has ha- home-recorded... Now, obviously, the wax cylinders were mass-produced by Edison and sold with... Recordings that they did in Edison in New Jersey, and that stuff has all been digitized. That stuff all exists. But, like, if anybody has any wax cylinders that people did at home, like Lummis did here, oh, if they haven't been digitized now, yeah. they're going to be gone forever soon enough because they're deteriorating.
0: It's so weird that you mention that. So, w- next to my grandmother, so my grandmother lived in her house for like 30 years. She had a next door neighbor that was there for maybe 20 something years. Mm-hmm. And on a trip out there, this is a totally random fact, but on a trip out there, you know, four or five years after, um, like, my family moved that out of the area, I went back to visit. And so I went into their house, and they have... The, uh, and I'd been in their house several times as a kid, you know, because they, they had three daughters, and so, like, uh, you know, I would hang out with them. There's a lot of kids in the neighborhood, so I'd been in the house several times, is my point. But going back there as an adult, what I discovered is that they have an Edison wax cylinder player mm. from, you know, the early, early 1900s. Yeah, uh, or probably whenever. like
1: the one Lemus used in here. I'm sure like.
0: it's exactly yeah. like that, and she played like a wax cylinder, and... I, I kind of freaked out a little bit because I was like, whoa, "Whoa! Like this is like a, a historical artifact. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, she's like throwing it in there like those, you know, like, uh-huh. a, like an old tape at them or an eight track or yeah, something." Yeah. Like and I was like, "This is a piece of historical, <laughs> you know." But I don't know. I don't remember what we were listening to. Probably More like, like a I mean,
1: it was something that was. Uh, it wasn't
0: hand. Yeah, it right. wasn't like recorded right. there. It Which was, that's fine. But it's still amazing yeah. though yeah. that no, they had these things.
1: It's a, it's a, it's brilliant, and if for those interested. Uh, I, a question I always get asked here at the house is whether or not Ewell Hauser was a visitor here, and he was, and the whole episode he did was about the wax cylinders. And what they did at that point, this was like 20 years ago, yeah. they came into this room, got Edison wax cylinder, and had young, two young people come and record one of the Spanish songs in oh, wow. California, and yeah. then replayed it back so that you can hear it. Oh, and no that's kidding. on YouTube. KCET oh, wow. just recently uploaded it on YouTube. So for those who are interested check that out
0: well it's interesting because a lot of the stuff i'm into he was into so i find a lot of stories about him coming through i'm almost following him the way that uh, Lummis followed reed and um so
1: real quickly what's interesting i don't want to take credit for this (laughs) then then done (laughs) i might just a little uh the the you so kct also did another documentary on Lummis. Um, that was on their program, Artbound. I'm in it very briefly in the sections that they come here in the house. Yeah. And um, when the producers came, well, first off, when the producers came, I should say this, the producers came to here to check out the house, at, you know, uh, asked me questions, and then said, oh, I'm like, what, what what exactly are you guys doing? We're doing an hour-long documentary on Lummis. Hmm. And I'm like, eh, I don't know that that's... I, like, I don't know that that's possible. I mm-hmm. don't think that's possible. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you guys are going to have to pick an angle. These guys didn't know anything about Lummis. They were kind of coming uh, into the screen and kinda. saying, like, oh, you know, like, oh, we want to do, we're researching Lummis. We want to do an hour-long documentary, yeah. television documentary on Lummis. I'm like, I, you guys have to pick an angle. because Yeah, that's just that's not, too much. This just possible. They did a brilliant job, I think, of doing it. They did do an hour-long documentary on Lummis, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's his it. life. Mm-hmm. But, it's, uh, you know, they leave out what we're getting into, which is mm-hmm. his personal life. Uh, a lot of it, his college years. I mean, a lot. But I think they did an amazing job. With it's a great, it's their, a great documentary. It's a great documentary. So when the producers came to me and said, oh, we're going to do this, they and they're from KCET, or they're working, they're producing it for KCET, they said, oh, was Yul Hauser ever here? And I wasn't here at that time. This was before, well before my time. I've only been here seven years. But I knew he was here because I know the people... In the video, and the people from the historical society had mentioned to me that Ewell Hauser was here, but they never aired it. They never uh. aired the, the episode, and I thought that was odd. I'm like, well, why would he not? This seems like such a perfect, you know, yeah, spot for him. Why would they never air the episode? It seemed, you know, anyways, it seemed odd. So I mentioned that to them, like I just said. I said, yeah, he was here. They, didn't, for some reason, never aired it. But I'm sure if you go down to Chapman, Ewell Hauser gave all of his archives, his videos to. Uh, Chapman, yeah. um, in uh, down in Orange mm-hmm. at uh, Chapman uh, University, college university. Anyway, if you go down there, I'm like fact check that. Yeah, fact check that one. <laughs> Somebody's from Chapman's gonna yell. <laughs> uh, I said, you know, if you go down to Chapman, I'm sure that's in the archives because he gave it to uh. them. And so, cut to six months or whatever, eight months later. Uh, I hear, you know, I got informed, oh, you know, the documentary is coming out, the Artbound documentary. And then in the promotion for the Artbound documentary, they're like, oh, to promote the documentary, and right before the documentary, we're going to air a long lost episode of Yule Hauser. (laughs) And so that episode of him with the wax cylinders here, um, hadn't Aired ever ever until they used until they promoted it to use this documentary. Wow, so I don't want to take I don't know that they went for because of my telling them so or if they already knew that or what.
0: This is why why you are different than Lummis because you will not take credit for it. Where he absolutely (laughs) would totally would shamelessly. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, so we're 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 out of time here, but I want to mention two things really quickly that um, that Lummis was knighted by the king of Spain, which is really cool. Yes, Um, and. He, uh, his, yeah, so, so how, how does that, when did the monarchy end in Spain? Like, how, was he one of the last knights?
1: That's a good question. Because I
0: don't know. I don't know my history well enough to know. Well, the you answer.
1: know what's so funny? I don't know if. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I think there is still. I think he's
0: the last Spanish knight. Let's just let's that's say a, that. Uh, <laughs> we gotta, that's another fact check. This, yeah, yeah. All, this whole podcast it's is just going to
1: be check. an initiative for people to do research <laughs> for us. No, uh, I do know. You know, it's <laughs> so. That's a really good question. I don't. I don't know.
0: Uh, all right, so how do people find you? How can people come check this place out um, or get in touch with you if, you're, if you want to be uh, an expert or if you want to be left alone? How can people come to the house?
1: So uh, we're here uh, every Saturday, Sunday. This house is a beautiful, I mean, you really have to experience this house in person to really get what we're talking about. You can Google image it, but it, it has to be seen. It doesn't do it any justice. It doesn't this place do is it great. any justice at all, at all. Um, But we're located at 200 East Avenue 43, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is kind of weird. There are signs, but our gate is actually on Carlotta Boulevard, which is the cross Mm -hmm. street. But that's the address. That's the historical address. That was Lummis's address on the Hmm. Southwest Society and the California Landmarks Club and all of the things. He did the Sequoia League, which was an advocacy group for Native Americans, 200 East Avenue 43. Uh, it's still our address. But anyway, we're here every Saturday, Sunday, 10 to 3. And I'm here virtually every Saturday, Sunday, 10 to 3 for (laughs) seven years now. Uh, So if you want to come check it out or uh, learn more about Lemus or talk about Lummis, or talk about anything else, this place is really interesting in terms of a historic house museum too in that sense. And that is something that I uh, picked up from the Historical Society of Southern California when they were here. Um it's not there isn't a guided tour, mm-hmm. mainly because it's I'm a one man show here, so it's kind of logistically hard to do that. Yeah. But uh, but even if there was another docent here, it's kind of just a conversation like when you came in here yeah. the first time. Yeah. It's kinda of like, Oh what I, I always kind of just ask like, Well what's your interest or where are you why did you hear about Lummus? Because Lummus His tentacles go everywhere in terms of all the things he was involved with. We get people coming here for all kinds of reasons. People who are just interested in the architecture. People who are interested in uh, uh, the Southwest, Southwest Museum, the missions, uh, Native Americans, uh, Native American groups. Mm -hmm. We had um, the great grandson of the man that Lummis lived with in Isleta come here a few weeks Hmm. ago. Wow because he still feels the familial connection to this place. So anyway, so we get people coming here for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, And so I always like to try to figure that out. Before we start, I start showing you around because sure. otherwise, if I just assume everybody's interested in everything, this is like this would be like a three-hour tour, like no. to Gill- Gilligan's Island. Yeah, It'd be like the whole the whole they would take. I can give an hour. I I always joke and say I can give an hour tour here about the doors of the house. Yeah, like we could just stop at each door and, and do like a whole thing. And do a whole thing on that. So, at any rate, so we're here every Saturday, Sunday, ten to three, and um, yeah. So if you want to come down here and check it out.
0: That's the way to do it. And I'm going to leave it on this, because you, when I was here, you gave, you told me how to get a hold of a piece of historic um, paper, which was how he pronounced Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. I ended up getting one of those. <laughs> I have one. It's pristine. Yes. I'm blown away that they're just giving these out to, the, to the, yeah. the populace. No offense to everyone listening, but you can't just hand these things out. It's like 100 <laughs> years old. But how did he, so I'll show a picture of this on the website, but how did he want Los Angeles pronounced?
1: Well, the way we pronounce it. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Angeles. But as a what, and it's, it's a little.
0: Well, his, he says it's not pronounced like that. No, in the what book.
1: People, what, I think what he was, what he was, his trying to uh, stop was the pronunciation at the time, which people don't even use anymore. I can't even think of it, the mangled, a very ang... Well, this, uh, the, the way it like was like Los, Los and An- yeah. yeah. which is a lot of, a way a lot of people said it back then. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so it was a common thing during Loomis' time. And, um, uh, he wanted to put an end to that yeah and he wrote about it in his magazine and then and then eventually to promote uh, one of his later editor jobs he made these little leaflets that's what you're referring to yeah that was a whole thing about the whole how thing to, about h- how to correctly pronounce lo- Los Angeles yeah and, and, and so. I have one of these things
0: I'm going to keep it safe because it's it's in great condition. Oh, by the
1: way. It's a, yeah, it's a it's hand a it out, man. Yeah. I don't know.
0: I don't understand that. But as a matter
1: of fact, that we have one here that I have yet to put on display, but it will be on display. Here. On
0: display, but not no one's going to touch it, right? No. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, Christian, thank you so much for this. This has been educational, and we have barely scratched the surface. Oh. We didn't even get into his photography or or his work with the the cabinet with Roosevelt's cabinet. This None is of that the stuff.
1: Tiniest, tiniest tip of the iceberg. Well, but I also recommend. Not the tiniest.
0: It's a good chunk. But <laughs> I know what you mean.
1: Uh, really, is tiny piece. I, it's a and, decent and, piece <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I highly recommend that Artbound documentary the I oh definitely Art Pound documentary and also the book that we mentioned which is by Mark Thompson if we've really peaked your interest yeah it's really called an really American good book. character yeah it's
0: yeah. a great book um, alright Christian thank you so much for sitting with me no problem and I want to thank everyone for listening have a good night Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to listen to every episode or to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Now, what I would prefer is that you subscribe to the show, uh, which is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you really want to learn about my projects, all the future ones, past ones, you can go to danieljglenn.com and subscribe to the newsletter, which will tell you all about the guests as well as upcoming projects. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. If you're done, let go. If you're done.